following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. When we first started the series, you might remember, I stood up here with my flannel graph. Remember that, the flannel graph board, and I put up a couple of characters from Judges. Well, I think we had Samson and, and Gideon, they tend to be the most well-known characters. And we talked about how often those of us that have come through Sunday school, we learn these stories from judges early. Uh, and, and often what happens, I think, as adults is that the book of Judges just kind of settles in our mind as a list of hero stories, unlikely heroes of the Bible. And we think of these judges as people to imitate who had great faith. And while they were a little bit weird, they served God and they gave their gifts to God and God used them to do amazing things. And I just hope that if nothing else in this series, the notion of these judges being a model to imitate has been put to rest for you. That as you've looked more closely at the lives of these judges, while there have been a couple of faithful ones among them, that they are not there as examples to us of moral living. Uh, These judges are morally ambiguous at best a lot of the time. Uh, and, and the, the point of Judges really isn't the Judges themselves at all. It's the sorry story of Israel during this time and the, the sad spiritual decline that they're on in this period of their history, the way that they just drift and drift and drift and cycle downwards away from God. And yet we see the faithfulness of God time and time again, rescuing them and delivering them when they, when they cry out to Him. So this morning we're in Judges chapter 21, last chapter of this whole book. And uh, we've seen in the past few chapters in Judges various snapshots of Israel's spiritual decline and snapshots of their faithlessness. We've seen it through the idolatry of Micah's family. We've seen it in the self-deception of Micah. We've seen it in the immorality of the story of the Levite and his concubine. We've seen it then in the civil war that Israel got itself into in the previous chapter. And then today, in this last chapter, we see it in Israel's failure to care about the weak and the poor and the vulnerable in their own community. And it's like the author is saying to us, that's really the final stage in a nation's decline when they fail to exercise concern for the weakest members of their community. So we'll see that as we go through. Judges chapter 21. The men of Israel had taken an oath at Mizpah, Not one of us will give his daughter in marriage to a Benjamite. The people went to Bethel, where they sat before God until evening, raising their voices, weeping bitterly. Lord God of Israel, they cried, why has this happened to Israel? Why should one tribe be missing from Israel today? Early the next day, the people built an altar and presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Israelites asked, who from all the tribes of Israel has failed to assemble before the Lord? For they had taken a solemn oath that anyone who failed to assemble before the Lord at Mizpah was to be put to death. Now the Israelites grieved for the tribe of Benjamin, their fellow Israelites. Today one tribe is cut off from Israel, they said. How can we provide wives for those who are left since we've taken an oath by the Lord not to give them any of our daughters in marriage? Then they asked, which one of the tribes of Israel failed to assemble before the Lord at Mizpah? They discovered that no one from Jabesh Gilead had come to the camp for the assembly. For when they counted the people, they found that none of the people of Jabesh Gilead were there. So the assembly sent 12,000 fighting men with instructions to go to Jabesh Gilead and put to the sword those living there, including the women and children. This is what you are to do, they said. 
kill every male and every woman who is not a virgin. They found among the people living in Jabesh Gilead 400 young women who had never slept with a man, and they took them to the camp at Shiloh in Canaan. Then the whole assembly sent an offer of peace to the Benjamites at the rock of Ramon. So the Benjamites returned at that time and were given the woman of Jabesh Gilead who had been spared. But there were not enough for all of them. The people grieved for Benjamin because the Lord had made a gap in the tribes of Israel. And the elders of the assembly said, With the woman of Benjamin destroyed, how shall we provide wives for the men who are left? The Benjamite survivors must have heirs, they said, so that a tribe of Israel will not be wiped out. We can't give them our daughters as wives since we Israelites have taken this oath. Cursed be anyone who gives a wife to a Benjamite. But look, there is the annual festival of the Lord in Shiloh, which lies north of Bethel, east of the road that goes from Bethel to Shechem and south of Lebanon. So they instructed the Benjamites, saying, Go and hide in the vineyards and watch. When the young women of Shiloh come out to join in the dancing, rush from the vineyards, and each of you seize one of them to be your wife. Then return to the land of Benjamin. When their fathers or brothers complain to us, we will say to them, Do us the favor of helping them, because we did not get wives for them during the war. You will see, you will not be guilty of breaking your oath, because you did not give your daughters to them. So that is what the Benjamites did. While the young women were dancing, each man caught one and carried her off to be his wife. Then they returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and settled in them. At that time, the Israelites left that place and went to their tribes and clans, each to his own inheritance. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Isn't that the truth? So, here is uh, a final tragic story in, uh, in this period of Israel. It comes hard on the heels of the civil war that we uh, saw last week that John took us through, uh, a war that really decimated Israel at the time, where the the tribes of Israel all went to war against Benjamin for the way that the Benjamites had defended the men of Gibeah when they abused this woman, uh, two women. And as a result of that civil war, there's huge casualties inflicted on the nation of Israel. 55,000 people lose their lives, and 25,000 of them are from the tribe of Benjamin alone. So that tribe is brought to the brink of extinction. And of the whole tribe of Benjamin, there are only then 600 men left. No woman, just 600 men hiding in a cave in the desert. And so then the dust settles on this civil war and the rest of the Israelites come to their senses and say, what are we going to do about this? We've got a terrible problem here. The tribe of Benjamin, one of our tribes, is about to be cut off, is about to be destroyed. There's these 600 guys and we can't provide wives for them because we made this oath that we took back when we decided to go to war against Benjamin, that anyone who gives his daughter as a wife to the Benjamites is going to be cursed. So we can't provide wives for them, and without wives, that tribe's just going to die out. And much as Israel's been at war against Benjamin, now they start to realize that if one tribe is cut off like this, the whole future of Israel is in jeopardy. They're weakened politically, they're weakened socially, they're weakened further spiritually. And Israel starts to worry that what happened to the Levite's concubine, that woman who was dismembered, cut up into pieces and sent to the corners of Israel, they're worried now that that's going to happen to the whole nation, that one tribe will be cut off and Israel will be dismembered and Benjamin will be no more. So they've got to find some wives for these guys. And they come up with an interesting plan, a very dubious plan. 
they say, let's figure out, let's see if we can figure out if anyone didn't come to this big council that we had when we decided to go to war against the Benjamites. See if any of the tribes of Israel didn't show up to that. And if they didn't, let's attack them. And let's go and kill all the men and women and we'll just leave the unmarried women. And then we'll abduct them and we'll give them to the remaining Benjamite guys as wives. What a great plan. So off they go and they find that there was indeed a tribe that didn't show up to the big council at Mizpah, the, the, the town of Jabesh Gilead. So they send 12,000 fighting men against that town who destroy the city. They kill all the men and women and they abduct the unmarried women and they give them to these remaining Benjamites. Now the author, you look, the author doesn't really give any comment on this. He doesn't sort of say good, bad, indifferent. And interestingly, God doesn't give any comment on this either. It's like by this time in Judges, God's basically silent. He's just stopped talking and, and largely stopped acting. He's just not even really a figure on the whole flow of history here. But I think it's fair to say this is pretty appalling. It's a pretty appalling act of violence against their fellow countrymen. And the irony is here, I mean, you think that they're trying to remedy violence. They're trying to remedy the situation where tens of thousands of people have been killed. And they do it by inflicting more violence and taking the lives of more Israelites and destroying this whole city. It's shocking stuff. It's appalling stuff. And the excuse they have, really, the only one they have is, well, these guys deserved it because they didn't show up to our meeting. There's no attempt to figure out why they might not have come. There's no attempt to understand their situation. It's a pretext for an attack so that they can abduct women and hand them off as wives to the Benjamites. And it seems to me that this kind of reveals a mindset that I think is prevalent in many societies, not just ancient Israel, but including our own society today. This idea that those people who are mistreated, those people who are victimized and abused, in some way they deserve it. You know, this kind of mindset, we saw a little bit of it, didn't we, with the roast busters. In some way, the argument goes, people that are victimized, they must have done something to deserve it. And we see it more broadly sometimes with our attitudes to the poor. They've got themselves into this mess. Why don't they just go and get a job? Why don't they just start being more productive and stop just living off the benefit? We see it with attitudes sometimes towards people who have come through relationship bust-ups. You know, it takes two to tango. They've done something. They're obviously at fault. And, and maybe they have. Maybe they, they legitimately have. People make bad decisions. People make poor choices. The problem is, I think, we then use that as a pretext to withhold our own compassion. To withhold, our, because it's much easier not to be compassionate. If we can say, well, they really have made bad choices. They are their own worst enemy. Therefore, I will take a step back. And I don't need to do anything. We may not actively mistreat them like the Israelites do. Our thing is we just, we just become passive. We just don't do anything when people need our help. And yet the gospel calls us to be men and women who show compassion not only to those who deserve it, but also and especially to those who don't. I've been so impressed in the past couple of years by two guys in our church who have journeyed with an ex-prisoner who's come out of Paramaremo. He was released a couple of years ago, and he sort of stumbled forward from there, made some good choices, made some bad choices, ended up getting himself back into Mount Eden Raman prison. 
and got out of there, and since then he's kind of been stumbling forward again. And it's fair to say, I think, you know, it's, it seems like a couple of steps forward, a couple of steps backwards. He's, he's trying, and yet he's, he's continuing, it, in all honesty, to make some poor choices. And yet these guys have hung in there with him, and, and they've, they've wrestled. I've seen them wrestling with these questions of how to prevent themselves from being taken advantage of and being manipulated, because that can happen so easily. They're not being naive. And I've had conversations with them where it's been hard to know how, how legitimate the need is sometimes, how much you're being taken for a ride, and they've done their best to be discerning, and they've done their best to be wise, but they haven't let the fact that this guy is making bad choices be an excuse for them to write him off. They just haven't written him off. They've stood there with him. They've met with him. They've continued to offer what support they can while providing boundaries around themselves and around their families to protect themselves, which is really important. But they've still exercised compassion as much as they've been able to. They haven't dismissed this guy. And I've found it such a great model of Christian compassion, discerning compassion, but genuine compassion. Because I find for me that the temptation is to be so suspicious of the need. You know what I mean? Anyone else down this end of the spectrum with me? That we're so cautious so worried that the need might not be legitimate, so worried that the money might not get to exactly where it's supposed to go, that it basically becomes inaction on our part. And I think for us, we need to be stirred a little bit to be people of compassion, even to those who don't deserve our compassion. It's so easy to be compassionate when people thank you for it, right? When people say, great, when they, when they make decisions because of your kindness, to get their lives sorted out. That makes our job so much easier. But what when they don't? What happens when, they, when you don't see the progress or when your time seems to be squandered? And I would argue that the call of the gospel is for us still to exercise compassion. You think about the parable of the Good Samaritan. We don't know, Jesus never tells us why that guy was lying at the side of the road beaten and bloodied. We don't know. We assume he was a victim. We assume he'd been beaten up by some mob and he was a victim. For all we know, he may have been there because he tried to take advantage of a woman and her father beat him up. We don't know. Maybe he was an offender who got what he deserved. Jesus doesn't tell us, interestingly, and the Samaritan never asks, interestingly. He just moves towards him with compassion. He just starts binding up his wounds, puts him on his donkey and takes him to the nearest inn or hospital, basically. I'm not suggesting that we be naive. We need to be discerning. We need to be wise. But we also need to find a way of being compassionate. Who's in your life that doesn't deserve your compassion? Who's in your life that just doesn't deserve your kindness? Who have you written off? Who have you dismissed? Just imagine if God treated you. Just imagine if God treated us only with love when we deserve it. I would be dead in my sins and transgressions. But it was while we were still sinners that God came to us and found us. And it's while we still live largely self-oriented lives that God hangs in there with us and perseveres with us and is faithful to us in spite of the fact that we make bad choices all the time and often squander His grace. 
but he just keeps on giving it to us. And he asks us to turn now towards the world, towards those in our lives, around us, in our church, in our communities, on our streets, and show that kind of compassion to them. The ones that deserve it, yes, but also the ones who don't. Okay, let's come back to the story. The Israelites plunder the city, they kill these people, and then they abduct these women. And they give them to the Benjamites, but shock horror, there's not enough of them. They only have 400 women for 600 guys, still a problem. So they need plan B now. We still got a net deficit of 200 wives for these Benjamites. We've got to find some wives. So they come up with another genius plan. And they say, look, there's a festival of the Lord happening in Shiloh. Probably one of the annual festivals that Israelites were were commanded, encouraged to attend. And uh, during this festival, the young woman of the town of Shiloh would come out and do a little dance through the city. And so the Israelites say, let's get the men of Benjamin, who need a wife, these last 200 guys, to go and wait in the vineyards, crouch in the vineyards. And when these young women come out and start doing their dance, each of you rush out, grab a wife, and carry her off to be your wife. It's a great proposal story, isn't it? I mean, and then, and then the Israelites have the gall of saying to the uh, families of these women, or planning to say, do us a favor. Please have compassion. That's literally how verse 22 reads. Have some compassion on these Benjamites because they don't have wives. Imagine if somebody abducted your teenage daughter and then rung you up and said, please have some compassion, won't you? I don't have a wife. Can't you see where I'm coming from? Of course I had to kidnap yours, kidnap your daughter. I mean, this is how far they have fallen from any sort of sanity. That This is really, I mean, in all seriousness, this is kidnap. This is, this is abduction. This is virtually rape, really. It's in the same vein as the atrocities of the past two chapters that we've seen with the behavior of the men of Gilead. This is just, even in a patriarchal society such as Israel was, this is appalling treatment of women. Between the woman of Jabesh, Gilead, being abducted, and then the woman of Shiloh, this is absolutely appalling treatment of women. And you have to wonder though, don't you, in 3,000 years, have we come that far? I saw in the Herald just this week the story of a woman who was the victim of domestic and sexual abuse at the hands of her husband up in Northland for 20 years. She was abused, her children were abused, but she was too terrified to tell anyone because he had said to her that if she did, he'd kill her parents. And then in exactly the same day in the Herald, the story of three women rescued from a London home who had been made to be domestic slaves for over 30 years in this house, finally And you just think, man, are we any different? This is exactly the same stuff. And yes, they're extreme examples, but these are extreme examples in the book of Judges too. And yet this was going on in this society. And you wonder if as a culture we've learned anything about the treatment of women in our society. It seems that we have such a long way to go, that we are still so tempted to objectify women, to commodify them, to treat them in some ways like property rather than with the full dignity and respect and honoring that they deserve. And these are not only women and judges. These are teenagers. These are basically teenage girls who are abducted. Among the most defenseless, 
helpless, vulnerable members of their society carried off. It's, it's actually shocking to think that some of the guys who took these women to be their wives may have been the very same guys that raped that concubine in the previous chapters and were now hiding over in the rock of Ramon. Quite possible that they were among the Benjamites who then get taken back and given wives. It's just staggering to think of that. These are teenagers, young people who are abused and mistreated and exploited. But again, the parallels with our own culture are pretty striking. We're in a culture where teenagers are often harmed, where they're hugely at risk, sometimes at the hands of other people, sometimes because of their own choices. New Zealand has second highest teen pregnancy rate in the developed world, second highest rate of youth suicide in the developed world, and just in the last year, that rate has spiked. Number of suicides has jumped from 50-something to 80-something in the last 12 months, and that's because of a spate of cluster suicides that have gone on where teenagers take their lives together in groups, almost glorifying the act itself. It's horrific. I heard this past week of a 10-year-old in New Zealand who came home and said to his parents that he wanted to die because of bullying at school, that he didn't want to live anymore. An 11-year-old this year in Taupo did take his own life. I think the youngest ever in New Zealand. And this is our culture. It's our society of desperate, desperate need. It leaves you with such a sense of hopelessness and helplessness. And how much more must that have been that sense of hopelessness for those who actually couldn't see any value in their own lives to the point they took them. But it makes you amazingly grateful, doesn't it, for the work of organizations like Heart for Youth who are out there actively training youth mentors. And I know some of you have been through that mentor training program this year. I went to the first birthday party of Heart for Youth the other week, just one year old, and three women stood up that night who each have become ambassadors for Heart for Youth, each of whom have lost a child to suicide, each of whom now ambassadors for Heart for Youth. And one of them stood up and said, honestly, if this organization was round a couple of years ago, it's quite possible that my child would be here today. This is what they needed. They needed a positive presence. They needed somebody to provide some encouragement, some hope, and just to walk with them and be with them in their life. And so now Ross McCook and his team are training mentors And our people are starting to get connected and starting to look around them in their own lives for people that they can mentor. This is happening. It makes me amazingly grateful for the work of Stephanie Gary in this school, our youth worker here, our 24-7 youth worker, who's on the school campus here a day a week, 10 hours a week, and off at school camps for seemingly half her life, speaking hope into these lives of these teenagers, giving some encouragement, being there with them, being a positive adult presence in their lives. It's happening. And as a church, we've got relationships with these organizations and we're walking the road and we're seeing what God's going to do. But it's also really easy, isn't it, to assume, well, that's happening out there. You know, that's Stephanie and that's these youth mentors. And I'm not a youth mentor. I'm not that person. I'm not a youth worker. What can I do? What can I do for the vulnerable? What can I do for those who are defenseless? And I think we've tended to make loving our neighbor serving the poor, helping the weak. We've made these things into a big deal that can only be done by people with lots of time and lots of resources who start organizations and champion causes and mobilize communities. And of course, there are people like that around and they make an incredible difference. But in a way, do you feel like that almost lets the rest of us off the hook? 
Because if, if loving our neighbor is a big thing, then it's not my thing. If it's a big deal, I can take a step back. And I'll leave it to those people who have got the time, resources, passion, energy, whatever, for that. I'm reading a great book at the moment called Small Things with Great Love. Adventures in Loving Your Neighbor. The title of that book is taken from a quote by Mother Teresa who said, We cannot do great things, only small things with great love. And the whole premise of the book is that loving our neighbor, looking out for the vulnerable and the needy and the poor and the hurt and the marginalized, it is ultimately a small thing. It's an incredibly important thing, but it's a small thing and it's made up of lots of small actions in the course of our everyday lives. She tells the story at one point of a guy called Chuck. And Chuck was in church one day and there was a speaker talking about helping the poor and alleviating poverty and, and working for justice and compassion. And Chuck came up to the speaker at the end of the day and said, you know, I just don't feel like I've got the time for it. I don't have any spare hours in my week that I can volunteer in a homeless shelter. I don't have any time that I can volunteer in a soup kitchen. And this woman said to him, do you know, well, she said, do you work in an office? He said, yes, I do. She said, do you know who cleans your office? He said, no. And she said, we'll start there. Start by finding out the name of the person who cleans your office. And just see. Apparently, a few months later, Chuck rung up the speaker, and the first thing he said was, her name's Regina. It's Regina. He'd figured out her name. He'd had a conversation with her, struck up a friendship, and a couple of years later, he had Regina and her whole family around for Christmas. Now, that might be the result. It might not, but the point is that it is small things, very tiny things done with great love that are going to change the world. Just one tiny, tiny thing that I've started doing recently, there's an intellectually handicapped guy on our street who walks past our, our house every day. He gets home at about the same time as me, walks down the road, and I've just started trying to take the initiative to strike up conversation with him. Learned his name, using his name, having a conversation, asking him about what's going on, and sometimes the conversation's difficult and it's awkward, but I'm starting to see a real light in his face when he talks about the stuff that he's doing in his life, because you just wonder how many people are really asking that how many people he's got an opportunity to tell other than his parents. When he talks about the show that he went to in town, when he talks about his uncle coming to stay, when he talks about his recycling, you know, little things. But he's got some joy in having someone to tell about that stuff. And it takes me all of about two minutes extra every few days to have a conversation with him. But I can see that this is breathing some life. I'm no great model of it, but it's, it's something. Here's a guy who's literally coming across my path. And to be honest, for years I've not noticed him. I'm sure he's been doing this for a long time. But just as God's been raising this awareness in me, I've started literally to see him. And starting to take some steps towards him and having a conversation. It's the smallest of things. But I'm trying to do it with love. And it's my attempt to show some compassion to someone who needs it. There are people who come across our path all the time who we just fail to see and fail to notice. And I think God's invitation to us is not to busy our lives with a whole lot of other commitments and a whole lot of other hours in the day spent doing things. Some can do that, others cannot. But the call of Christ is, I think, to become aware, simply to open our eyes and ask God to make us aware of the people already around us 
that we can step into this way of living where we start to see people, the, the person who serves us at the gas station or the dairy, people who we're walking past, people who we're sitting next to on the bus, people who we're working with, people at the gym, whoever, people already around us in our lives as people who can be objects of grace and mercy and love just in the simplest of ways, gestures, words from us that can be encouraging. And in those ways, we start to breathe some life and hope into other people without having to feel like it's all about taking on big and strenuous commitments. The very spaces that you're already in, at work, at home, at church, are the places where the kingdom of God can break in and heaven can come to earth and kindness and compassion can be revealed as we fold it into the ordinary rhythms and routines of our everyday life. I would love for us to be a church, increasingly, because this is already happening, but to increasingly become a church characterized by small things with great love. And it's just in our DNA, you know what I mean, that we're talking about it when we gather as life groups. Who's, who's come across your path this week? We're talking about it in the cafes with friends at lunchtime, talking about it around the family table, talking about it in our serving teams, that we just have this way of thinking and being that we're aware and we're sharing the stories and we're stepping towards those in need with great love and great kindness in really, really small things. So as we wrap all of this up and wrap this whole series and judges up, let me just return one final time to what I think is the absolute main major theme of this whole book. You look at that last verse in verse 21. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. You know what's amazing? When you get to the end of the book, I think the greatest miracle is that Israel exists at all. I mean, really, by any law of logic, they should have been wiped out numerous times over by their enemies. They've been brought to their knees by enemy nations. They've been brought to the brink of extinction by civil war. And yet you get to the end and here they are, the people of God carrying on, still in the land, still intact, even with Benjamin, and about to enter the era of monarchy. And that's a whole other story. But the faithfulness of God is still there. And I think Judges really, maybe, maybe more than any other book in the Bible, is, is this test of God's grace. It just shows the degree to which humanity tests and tries the patience of God. And yet in the end, isn't this book a wonderful witness to the sheer tenacity of God's grace? The sheer resilience of His mercy that He will not give up on His people. He will not turn away no matter how broken and flawed and faithless they are or we are, but His mercy endures. And it endured and endured and endured right down to God sending Jesus, the Messiah, the great judge, the great deliverer, who has laid His life down for us and won an amazing victory and now secures the faithfulness of God for us on through eternity. Ultimately, the book of Judges should lead us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith, who for the cross, the joy set before him, endured the cross. And despising its shame, he sat down at the right hand of God. So let's consider these judges, let's consider Israel's story, but ultimately let's consider Jesus and take courage from him so that we don't grow weary. And don't lose heart. May we know the faithfulness of God in our lives and his enduring love. And may we turn towards other people and show them something of that great love. The undeserving ones, 
the unprotected ones, the unnoticed ones. Let's move towards them with the love and the compassion of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we, we thank you for the testimony of this book. And even though, Lord, it tells such a dark time in the history of your people, we see the shining light of your faithfulness and your grace. We thank you, God, that you've shown love and compassion to us when we least deserved it, and that you continue to show love and compassion to us now, even though we're so undeserving of it. Lord, let us take that to heart. And let us seek to become people of genuine kindness, genuine love, genuine compassion to those around us. Just extending to them the same kindness in some small way that you have shown to us. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.